0: Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now, on to today's episode. This is episode 11 in our Second Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul Defends His Ministry, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today?
1: So this is the first of three chapters, um, 10, 11, 12, in which he's overtly um, attacking uh, or defending himself against some false teachers who are besetting the Corinthian church. Paul planted that church and left, and now some other teachers are coming that he's going to openly say in the next chapter are false teachers, they're false apostles, they're uh, servants of Satan. And so he is taking them on here, and he's warning the church about his power to deal with false doctrine and false teachers and any that follow them. And so in chapter 10, we're going to see a lot of his his assertion of apostolic power. To some degree, it seems he wants them to be afraid of that power and bring their lives in order. But ultimately, he doesn't want them to fear him. He wants to be a spiritual father to them. So I think like any godly father. If your kids are acting out, some teenagers, something like that, and there's some issue, you want them to fear you and fear what you'll do, but not ultimately. You don't want them finally to fear you. So we're going to see Paul talking about the spiritual power he has as an apostle ultimately to build them up. But there's some negative work that needs to be done. He's got to
0: deal with these false teachers, which he will do over the next three chapters. Well, let's begin our reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare Are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others." But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends." Paul begins this chapter by making an appeal to the Corinthians in verses 1 and 2. Why is he so careful to make it with meekness and gentleness? And what level of boldness does he think he'll have to display when he gets to Corinth?
1: Well, I think he emphasizes meekness and gentleness because most of the chapter he's emphasizing his apostolic power. And he emphasizes it in such a way that he's he's aware that they would and even could and should feel fear. In reference to his apostolic power. But he knows that uh, he is a, a messenger of Christ, an apostle of Christ, and, and he's in the, the spirit of the first coming of Christ, not the second coming, which is uh, Christ coming in wrath and judgment on the earth. But in the first coming, he comes very meekly as the Lamb of God. And so he wants to be gentle and meek and loving and humble as Christ would be. But behind it, no doubt about it, his apostolic power. So it's a it's a combination of that. And and I think they misunderstand. They say, you know, he's so meek and timid and quiet when he's there, but his letters are they'll blow you away. And so he's saying, look, we're we're the same people, we're consistent. So there is a meekness and gentleness even in my letter here. Mm. But there's also a power behind all of it.
0: Now, how is the warfare that he goes on to speak of in verses 3 and 4 that's carried on by Christians, whether in teaching the word, in discipleship, or in church leadership, different from that done by the world?
1: Okay, so the context here is he's saying that our opponents, the enemies that he's going to mention overtly in chapter 11, the super apostles who are false apostles – assume that we do what we do in a worldly or fleshly way, according to the flesh is a simple translation, but we don't. Um, Our whole approach is not a fleshly approach. And so he's saying they should not assume that we do our work in the normal worldly sort of way. Neither should they think that our weapons or our warfare or our approach is worldly for even though we do live in the world. We don't wage war as the world does. We don't have those kinds of weapons. The weapons we fight with are not worldly weapons. Instead, they have divine power, Paul says. So there's a supernatural power to what Paul does. So what it means is if you look at Paul on the outside, he looks like a loser. He's frequently in prison. He's beaten. He's, he's small. He's insignificant. He's, uh, he was with the Corinthians in weakness and fear and much trembling, but behind it all, is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. It's it's powerful. And so he says we actually are waging war. There's a warfare we're waging, and we're fighting Satan and demons uh, so that people can be rescued, can be reclaimed for the kingdom of God. And so the warfare we're fighting is a powerful warfare warfare. And he says very plainly in verse five, uh, we demolish arguments. Mm. And so the idea is verbal and spiritual. We are demolishing false ideas about God and about Christ and about our ministry, including. And so he says, we're ready to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So the warfare he's talking about here is mental, it's spiritual, it's doctrinal. um, Behind all of it is the power of almighty God.
0: Now, what do human weapons, like you mentioned a moment ago, do compared to Christian spiritual weapons? There's there's something that we're aiming at when we use mm-hmm. either of these things, yeah. but there's a difference. So, what would be some differences there?
1: So, I would guess that we would say all human weapons destroy things. They disassemble cells, like a like a sword thrust separates the side of someone's body, you know, it separates the skin molecules and then the then the um you know, the muscles and the tendons and then even the vital organs and brings death uh, in that way. It's destructive. Bombs do the same thing. They break apart things that were a moment ago together. They destroy things. Paul's uh, weapons are uh, spiritual and they really are demolishing or destroying ideas, Mm. doctrines, and also the invisible grip that Satan has, the invisible chains that Satan puts on souls Uh, through his temptations and through his accusations. So uh, it's a a very different kind of weaponry that he uses. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we are ready to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So the battle is waged within human minds, Mm. within human hearts. It has to do with conceptions and doctrines and, um, and patterns of living that flow from that.
0: So how are the arguments that Christians are trying to destroy then, like strongholds, and in what way are they raised against the knowledge of God?
1: So there are many, many false doctrines that uh, then Christianity comes to destroy. So legalistic Judaism, you know, the circumcision group, he had to deal with that. He had to destroy the false doctrines, which he does in Galatians and in Romans and in various places. Uh, other uh, across 20 centuries of church history, other false doctrines and false religions have had to be destroyed. And so apologists and and um, you know Christian evangelists have studied and learned Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. Or materialistic atheism, and have understood how those ideas can be demolished, can be broken apart. Earlier today, I was I was uh, addressing uh, the men's men's uh, Bible study. Uh, we have a noon Bible study uh, that we listen to. Uh, we we uh, walk through Scripture and was talking about um, Islam and saying the fundamental flaw of Islam is that there's no atoning sacrifice. And so the only way that Allah can accept Muslims who have sinned, and they all acknowledge that they violate Allah's laws, because it's very much based on on Christianity, Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, but Allah accepts them because Allah is merciful. But if Allah is merciful, and if there is no atoning sacrifice, then Allah cannot be just. And so how can Allah be both just and merciful to the sinner and allow anyone into paradise? But Christians have an answer to that. It's by the cross of Christ. Yeah. It's by the fact that God the Son died in our place. So we, I think in that way, you have demolished the essence of Islam. So we break apart. Take, let's take also materialistic evolution, the concept of evolution. It's a stronghold. It's very powerful. It has an, another way of explaining how everything we see with our eyes came about, but it has fatal flaws fundamental flaws. I, I've looked at a number of them in the past, like where did the first living cell come from? Hmm. How could it possibly be on planet Earth that one moment everything was a bunch of of inert chemicals, not living chemicals, and a moment later you have life, you have the first living cell? How could anyone even believe that? Hmm. And, and then it reproduces and on it goes. It's just, I don't know how anyone could believe that. There are just flaws to evolution. And so um, Christians think about the system and blow it apart. But one thing we don't do, we don't blow apart people. We demolish ideas. Mm -hmm. We demolish arguments. We demolish invisible chains that are holding people in sin. That's what we try to break apart.
0: Andy, one of the things that's been a hallmark of your ministry and what we aim to do here at this local church is to elevate the ministry of the word. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could speak to the role of the ministry of the word in demolishing these strongholds and arguments, why the word is so central to this kind of warfare.
1: Right. I think a a pastor needs to find out what kind of, of strongholds, mental doctrinal worldview strongholds are besetting. Um, his people and his community and then blow them apart by the word of God. And so the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to do it. And so we – sometimes it's not even intentional. Just by systematic proclamation of verse – after verse, book after book of the Bible, certain things just are going to be blown apart. Mm. They're going to be destroyed. Even if I don't intentionally go after them, they're going to fall by the wayside and be destroyed. So I think the idea is that there's an essential destruction going on with the advancing kingdom of God. And that destruction is of these satanic strongholds. And so there has to be a negative uh, aspect to our preaching We're preaching against certain things so that we can preach for other things.
0: All right, so what's the difference then between destroying an argument that's enslaving a person and destroying the person himself? And how does understanding that we're not battling against people but against these false ideas that are enslaving them Help us to not get sinfully angry when doing mm-hmm. evangelism and apologetics with unbelievers, especially as we seek to love and care for our city and and demolish those things that have taken them captive.
1: Right. I think uh, maybe we just start with that that amazingly unique command that Jesus gave us to love our enemies, mm. to pray for those who persecute us. We'll just pause right there. What are we praying for? Aren't we ultimately praying that we could spend eternity with them in heaven? Isn't that what we would like? Mm. When Stephen was dying, wasn't he, he – yearning that that God would forgive them. He said, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. He didn't want them to be guilty for that sin. Mm-hmm. He wanted, it seems, all of the ones who are stoning him to be able to see the glory of Christ as he was seeing it and to join him in that glory in heaven. So a love for what the people could be, not what they are right now, but what they could be, what God could do in their lives if he sets them free. That's how we desire not to blow apart people or destroy people, but we definitely want to loosen those invisible chains that Satan has woven around their souls, the chains of lust and of of, of world view flaws and false religion and idolatry, to see those chains, they won't see it, but to to know that those chains, invisible chains, have slipped off of their souls and now they're free to follow Christ. To me, that's awesome. So that's how we do it. We imagine, that's how I do it, I would say, imagine what this person would be like if they were converted and became a brother or a sister in Christ and then go after that. We don't want to destroy people. We want to save them. We want to destroy the ideas that are hurting them.
0: Yeah, what a powerful image to have in our minds as we have those conversations with people that can be very challenging. Mm -hmm. All right. So as we wrap up this first section uh, in verses five and six, what does it mean to take every thought captive to obey Christ? Mm -hmm. And what does Paul seem to be threatening in verse six? Well, I think it's vital for us to recognize the
1: power of Satan um, to insinuate Ideas into our minds. It says in Second Timothy chapter two that Satan can take people captive to do his will, and I think that includes Christian people. Uh, we are able to be influenced by ideas that come in our minds that we are not careful about, and we don't we don't always know um, that this new idea and thought that's popped in our mind, an idea of bitterness or negativity towards someone, or uh, accusation of their wrongdoing, different things, is really coming from Satan. And uh, in it comes in our minds and we start thinking dark thoughts about this person and start feeling jealous toward them or start feeling angry or unreasonably hostile toward them. And we don't even know why. And that's why it says in another place, we're not unaware of his schemes in 2 Corinthians chapter two, that we're not unaware of his schemes, that we need to say, wait a minute now, there's a thought running across the field of my mind. Mm. I think it's an enemy thought. Mm. I think it's an evil thought. I think I need to go take it captive and make it obedient to Christ. So you <laughs> you go like seize that thought and bring it in chains and throw it down before King Jesus and say, Lord, this seems like an enemy thought. What do you think? It is. So mm-hmm. then we destroy the thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I would think about it. I've seen it sadly sometimes in my marriage where I'm having some kind of a, a marital, how should I put it? Marital discussion, <laughs> a, a warm marital discussion. Um, and then something will pop in my mind and I'll say, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. If I were to say that, it would be incredibly hurtful. And I'd realize I don't even think it, I don't agree with it. Well, then why is it in my head? it's because Satan has the power to insinuate it. Now for those of you that say if I'm in if I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit, Satan doesn't have access to my brain. I want to say be careful about that. Mm. I think he is the spirit of the power of the air. There's a kind of an air or an atmosphere to him. And also notice that good angels were able to put dreams in Joseph's mind to warn him about Herod's activity, to tell him to flee to Egypt with Mary and the baby Jesus and then to come back after those people were dead. How did how did an angel have the capacity to put a dream in joseph's mind mm. well if good angels can do that maybe bad angels demons can insinuate things too so i would want to say we're not able to be captivated by by an owned demon possessed by uh satan but i think
0: individual thoughts can be insinuated and we need to take them captive to jesus now, verse 6, he says, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Is this the mm. same idea or something a little different that we need to understand?
1: Well, he's starting – now he's, what he's doing is he's applying it. He said we have an apostolic power, and we are able – when we show up in Corinth, and when we see what these false apostles, these false teachers have done to this church, mm. and when we see that they've got some disciples that are you know, part of their clique, part of their group, and they will not be won over to the truth, they'll see what will happen. And I think it's terrifying. He's he's implying a certain measure of power here that I think it would be helpful for us to consider the case of Peter and Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five, when Peter showed up and addressed the sin of Ananias and then later of his wife Sapphira, they dropped down dead. Peter didn't kill them, but he knew he was there in the power of the Holy Spirit and, and he spoke the sentence over them. And then the power of God came upon them. God has the power to put people to death. And do other things as well. We think about in First Corinthians where it says, because of aberrations and sins concerning the Lord's supper, some of them were weak and sick and a number had fallen asleep, meaning they had died. So the Lord is able to make you sick. He's able to do certain things. And it could be that he won't do it until Paul speaks the word. He says, the Lord will now do X to you. I mean, he did that, didn't he? Um, with uh, Elimus the sorcerer. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. This is in Acts 13. Mm. And you're going to be blind for a time, mm. boom. Paul remembered that. It's like, yeah. And so he has the ability to strike you with blindness, with do I mean, do certain things. So there's an implied power. And he says, look, when we show up, once you guys are set as a mature church and you should know better, you're not little children anymore. You should have dealt with these apostles. You should have dealt with these false apostles and dealt with them. If you don't deal with them,
0: I will. Mm. And so we're ready to punish every act of disobedience when we come. Now, what challenge does Paul issue to his opponents in verse seven?
1: Um, he he wants to say, first of all, look, you know, we are Christians too. If you're if you're saying you belong to Christ, um, we belong to him too, and so that that doesn't put you give you any advantage over us whatsoever. I, I mean, all of the spirit of these three chapters is very confrontational. There's a there's a war going on. And he's saying, like, if you're if you're uh, saying you belong to Christ, uh, don't think we don't either. So that doesn't give you any advantage at all. The fact is we belong to Christ as much as they do.
0: And he continues this line of thinking, talking about authority. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's just helpful for us yeah. uh, in verse 8 to ask the question, what do we learn here about mm-hmm. the true purpose of God-ordained authority? Mm-hmm. What does the fact that Paul is not ashamed of his authority teach us as well?
1: Yeah, so Paul is saying, I want you to understand we have authority as apostles of Christ. And we have the ability to do certain things. So again, that backdrop of of Peter with Ananias and Sapphira or Paul and his first missionary journey with Barnabas on Cyprus when when he said to Elamus the sorcerer, that he would be struck with blindness because he was opposing the word of God. Um, others could fall down dead. I mean, who knows what will happen? We have a very real authority from God. And we don't want you to be frightened by that, but we want you to know we're taking this whole thing seriously. And so uh, I w- I'm so-called boasting, and he's going to talk a lot about boasting because I think that was exactly how these f- super apostles were acting. They were very boastful, arrogant people. Paul's saying, okay, we'll do some of our own boasting. And what I'm going to tell you is we are apostles of Christ, chosen by Christ, and the power of God is on us. Mm. And when we come, he- come there to Corinth, we're going to clean house. We're going to deal with certain things. Like you said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 21, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod or with gentleness? I can bring a rod. And what is the rod? It's this kind of power. Yeah.
0: Now, based on that, as we move into verse 9, Paul basically says to them, uh, I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my Mm -hmm. letters. How could Paul's letters be terrifying or frightening to those who read them? And what's Mm -hmm. the real reason for their scary words and powerful tone?
1: Well, Paul has a very powerful writing style. Some of the most convicting things we read in the entire Bible were written by the Apostle Paul. And the kind of wrong-headed thinking that came up is like look his his letters will scare you but when he shows up he's not much <laughs> you know he he actually even talks about that in 1 Corinthians 2 when I was with you I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling here in this chapter he says it's it seems like we're we're timid when face to face but bold when away in verse 1 so honestly he wants you to, he wants the Corinthians to know we're the same people all the time sometimes we're going to be gentle in our letters and 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 bold in our person and other times we are going to be the other way around. The fact of the matter is, yes, uh, Paul's letters are are weighty and forceful, um, but I am, when I come, uh, coming in the gentleness and the meekness of Christ. I'd like to be your friend. I would like to have a love relationship with you. Um, If I have to warn you from time to time, I will, but that's not home base. And the fact of the matter is, and this is really exciting, if we're genuinely Christians, our sins are temporary. We're gonna spend eternity in warm-hearted, perfect, loving fellowship with each other in heaven. So sadly, from time to time, we have to deal with sin. But our home base is gonna be a happy, peaceful, loving friendship together and fellowship. So Paul wants to to display that. So don't misunderstand me, Paul's saying, I'm not weak and timid in person. Mm -hmm. I'm loving to you and tender, like a father caring for children. But when the time comes, if there needs to be some strength, I'll do it.
0: So that's why in verses nine and 10, he goes on to kind of draw that out, right? To Mm -hmm. point out, hey, some people are saying he's got really strongly worded letters, but he's just kind of timid and meek in mm-hmm. person. He's saying, listen, that's, that's actually just because I'm trying to display something to you about mm-hmm. the nature of our relationship and the nature of uh, what it looks like for you to follow
1: Christ. Right. And I think, you know, what he's saying in verse 11, uh, what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. I think fundamentally that's what he says about the book of Romans. Mm. I want to be with you, but many things have hindered me. And he explains in Romans 15 why he hasn't come there yet, but he sent the letter in his place. Effectively, what he's saying is the letter will do what I would do if I could come. Hmm. And he's saying the same thing here. My my letter stands in my place. Well, now Paul's dead and has been for all these centuries. We're not going to have Paul come to our church, but we get to have Paul come to our church by these letters. Yeah. And so what he would do if he would come as a guest speaker at First Baptist Durham or some other church, he would do through the letters. By the way, that's basically what I do as a verse-by-verse expositor. I get up and I basically say, effectively, the Apostle Paul is going to come and teach us right now. If you he were here, this is what he would say.
0: Mm. Now what does verse 12 teach us about Paul's enemies in Corinth, the super apostles that we'll meet in just a few verses in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 5, perhaps in a, a future podcast? And what's so bad about comparing yourself to yourself to commend mm-hmm. yourself?
1: Yeah, so fundamentally, they're commending themselves. They're saying we're, we're, we're all that in a bag of chips. We're, we're awesome. We're great and all that. And it's like, what in the world? I think Paul is so worn out with these people. They're just <laughs> really just bad people. They're arrogant, boastful people. Mm. And he's saying we don't we don't want to do what they do. Um, Fundamentally, that's not what we do. Uh, All that really matters is what the Lord thinks about me. He says, you know, in another place, you know, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. What matters is what the Lord thinks. And so judge nothing until the the end of the world. You'll find out what I am when Jesus comes. So, uh, you know, whatever we appear to be, fundamentally, all that really matters is what Christ thinks about us. But he's saying, we're not gonna stoop to their level. Their level is to be commending themselves By comparing themselves with others. He said, we're not doing that. Um, They are not wise when they do that. When they start with themselves and go outward and then compare themselves to others, that is unwise.
0: How does Paul then address the super apostles' habit of arrogant boasting in verses 13 through 15? What mm-hmm. limits does he put around his own boasting, and how does that serve as a rebuke of these super, super apostles?
1: So he's saying in verse 15, we don't go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. That's exactly what the super apostles were doing. Hmm. They're parasites. They, they came along and and are feasting on on the solid work that Paul and his fellow laborers did in Corinth and now they're discrediting Paul and they're just just setting up their own things on the foundation that Paul laid. And so Paul doesn't do this. We were given a field to work. God told us to come. And so the work done in Corinth is part of the larger work being done in the in in Greece. Starting in Macedonia, where he had that Macedonian call in general sent out by the by uh, the Holy Spirit from Antioch in Acts 13, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas going to go check up on those churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Mm. And then they were blocked and thwarted and hindered from all these geographical directions. And it's was like, all right, what do you want us to do, Lord? And then he had a vision of a man from Macedonia, Greece, saying, come over and help us. So called by the Holy Spirit, they went over to Macedonia, worked their way down, Thessalonica, Athens, and then Corinth. Mm. And so we were given you as part of our allotted territory. You're part of our assigned field. And so we're gonna limit our boasting to you and to all the fields assigned to us. And part of what we're boasting about is the, the area of ministry and sp- supernatural or spiritual gifts given to me. I didn't call myself as an apostle. I was set apart by the grace of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So that's the field assigned to me. I'm gonna stay within those boundaries. These other people, they've poached into my boundaries, they've come into my area, they've come to you, Corinthians, and they're now boasting in an area that was assigned to us. So we're gonna limit our boasting to apostolic work done in a field
0: God entrusted to us. Paul goes on to elaborate a hope that he has in the latter part of verse 15 and into 16. What is that hope and how does he want the Corinthians involved in helping him take the gospel to unreached regions?
1: Well, he wants them to keep growing. He wants them to, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And so he wants their uh, ministry, Paul's ministry, to expand among the Corinthians. He has more to teach them. There's more Christian doctrine they could learn. And as they grow more doctrinally, mentally, intellectually, they're also gonna uh, grow in their holiness and in their commitment to the Great Commission. They're gonna grow in their concern for the regions beyond. And so they're going to send missionaries out. They're going to train some people and send them. Uh, so the idea is that that uh, the the gospel work can continue. And Paul includes himself in that so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. So we want to see you keep developing and growing. And we want to see the, the uh, ministry developing into geographical regions that are as yet unreached with the gospel.
0: How does Paul's repeating of let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, fit Mm -hmm. into his train of thought in verse 17.
1: Well, again, this is regular pattern that these false apostles have of boasting. And you think this is evil. And fundamentally, all boasting is boasting in the Lord. So Paul deals with boasting a lot. And I think he was a boastful man before he was converted. Um, And so once he was converted, he realized only, the only good thing about me, any good thing about me, was given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. So all boasting ultimately goes to Christ. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So fundamentally, he wants all of the workers of Christ to be humble and realize everything they have is from God. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Ultimately, all boasting goes to the Lord.
0: What's Paul's final word in this chapter, and what final thoughts do you have for us today?
1: All right, so the super apostles are very big on commending themselves. Paul says, "It's not the one who commends himself. Hmm. What really matters is the one the Lord commends." And fundamentally, uh, it kind of reminds me of of that whole controversy between um, Moses and Aaron on the one side, and and uh, you know all those that were criticizing the ministry on the other. And uh, it was it Datham and a Byron? And, and then the 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 uh, earth opened up and swallowed them. You know, uh, so the fundamental thing, or again, Aaron. They're speaking against Aaron, and his staff budded and and like bore fruit. <laughs> you know, the staff. You know, with was it almonds and
0: not exactly a yeah. living plant? <laughs> no, tree. it's, just
1: it's like it's, it, it was <laughs> just lavishly blessed by mm-hmm. God, and all the other sticks, nothing happened. So what matters is God is at work in our ministry. God chose us. God is blessing us. He's blessing my ministry. What really really matters is, is the Lord at work. These false apostles, God isn't commending them because God didn't choose them. God didn't send them.
0: Any final thoughts for us, Andy, on this passage we looked at today?
1: Yeah, I want to go back to the statement of taking every thought captive. I think we need to realize that um, you know, what goes on in our brains matters, what our thought life matters. And so we need to have pure thoughts. We need to realize that every thought that we, that we think needs to be pure and holy. Uh, we need to think about what is true, what is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. If there are any thoughts in our minds that are not, we need to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ.
0: Well, this has been episode 11 in our Second Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 12, entitled Servants of Satan Exposed, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening
1: to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom.